Hi, thanks for turning on the pilot episode of the Blockpilled podcast. I'm starting this podcast to put out into the world insights on the crypto ecosystem and how blockchain technologies can help solve our problems and change the way we work. This is a non-technical podcast. There will be very little jargon and is meant to enlighten people of the possibilities of what blockchains can achieve. Most people are not aware of what blockchains even are, and that's totally fine. Much like any technology, you do not need to know any specifics in order to get the benefits. The majority of car drivers are not mechanical engineers, and most Facebook users are not software developers. Trouble is, though, a lack of understanding opens up a hole in people's minds which can be filled with propaganda and bogus criticisms, which only serve to further entrench the current economic hegemony. The internet in the 90s, as promised, did not free the world into the decentralized utopia some claimed it would, and it can be argued it only created higher walls for gatekeepers to extract value from us as citizens of the world. But we know now that those who tried to shove the internet under the rug as niche and not useful were completely and utterly wrong. The same is true for those who turn off their noses to blockchain and distributed ledger technologies today. They either do not understand and parrot what they hear, or worse, they stand to benefit by keeping the field muddy and confusing. With this podcast, I will sift through FUD, that is fear, uncertainty, and doubt, to bring the real news forward and talk about the developments in the field of crypto and how they can revolutionize like literally almost everything we do today. So moving straight into it, I will talk about NFTs, what people think they are, what they actually are, and then what they mean for the future. Additionally, I will dive deeper into a commonly cited paper that seeks to discredit Bitcoin and the blockchain by Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. So NFT stands for non-fungible token, and if that doesn't really help describe what they are, then let's talk about something that is fungible. Fungibility just means the ability of something to be exchanged for something else. Uh, A dollar, for example. My dollar, my $1 bill, is the same as your $1 bill. We accept that an exchange of my $1 bill for someone else's $1 bill is exactly the same. We can then call those dollar bills are fungible. They have complete fungibility. What non-fungible means in this in this case is that there is a token, you can consider a token like a cryptocurrency, but there is a token that is unique, it is non-fungible, that there is no other similar token that can be easily replaced for this one. And that's really all an NFT is. It uses the blockchain to prove scarcity and to prove that you own something. Now, what that is, and what most people will think of it, is an NFT is art. It is a JPEG that you can pay many thousands to millions of dollars that someone can go ahead and right click and hit save. Let's compare that to a real world art, uh, a painting by Van Gogh or, you know, Banksy even. We can download any picture of any particular artwork and instantly, you know, we claim to have the Mona Lisa, but that that's the key difference. While we can have a picture of the Mona Lisa, we can't make a claim that we own the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is owned by somebody and it is displayed in the Louvre in France and people spend thousands of dollars every single day to go and see it. But, you know, is seeing that painting in the Louvre any different from downloading a picture? People will probably say yes. Uh, It's not the same thing, but for others, you know, they don't really care about the art. And if they don't care about the art, then they won't go see the Mona Lisa. And they're perfectly content with downloading a picture of it, which is totally fine. The thing about cryptocurrency and blockchain and these non-fungible tokens is a lot of people will like to talk about the inherent value of something. The discussion then becomes a little bit more philosophical than tangible. What value does the Mona Lisa have? What value does a Pollock have? 
What value does anything have? What value does a dollar have? All of these things are subjective. But we can agree that $1 equals $1, but that's only because we have all decided that we agree upon that. Gold has some value because it can be used for things. You can melt it down, you can put it on circuit boards, you can make jewelry into it. And people will say that that is inherent value. But what about the cross-section of technology and art or the, the cross-section of technology and scarcity? Because that's what, that's what NFTs really are. It's scarcity proved by a smart contract. So before going into it a little more, let's describe what smart contracts are. So a smart contract is code that can run on a blockchain. And I'm probably going to be specifically talking about Ethereum in this case, but Ethereum is a blockchain network that has nodes that hold the entire blockchain database and it is decentralized and distributed amongst tens of thousands of nodes all over the world. And it's called a contract because in order for something to happen, there are conditions that need to be met. The inputs and the outputs are recordable and predictable. And that's why it's called a contract. You can think of it as a code-based vending machine or a kiosk or something automated. It is something automated where you, you put money and data in, your coin and you, your, your selection of a particular soda, it moves some arms, it does things behind the screen, and all that happens to you is you are then presented with your selection of soda. So that's what a smart contract is inherently. NFT is a standard of which people can program smart contracts to do a certain thing. And what's important with NFTs is, and their smart contract, is that they record ID numbers and it can be one, it can be 10,000, it can be a million, it can be however many. But what it gives people the option of is claiming ownership of a particular ID number. So say that ID number is number 10,000. You mint yourself an NFT uh, from a smart contract. You go to a website, you hit mint, you pay your Ethereum or whatever it wants. And your wallet is then assigned a particular ID. That ID is the representation on the blockchain of your NFT. So what can you do with that? Or what does a smart contract have? So the smart contract also has a URL that can be tied to it. You put in the NFT's ID, you hit the number, you go, you can actually go on Etherscan and see this stuff. You find your contract, you hit the number, you type in 10,000, you click enter. What returns back to you is a URL. That URL points to somewhere, and this could be in a database, it can be centralized, it could be decentralized, but that URL, and in the case of NFT art, it points to a piece of artwork. That URL is what you can right-click and copy, but no one else can claim to own it but yourself. The way that the blockchain works and the way wallets work is you can sign a message and that message can prove that it came from you. And you can likewise prove that you are the owner of that ID number. No one else will be able to claim that. It's the same way with the Mona Lisa. Someone has a receipt from a particular auction or some sort of provenance that they have that proves that they own indeed the Mona Lisa. And the provenance is proved on the blockchain in the form of NFTs. Okay, so that's art. Art NFTs are a thing. People are paying thousands of dollars. It sounds ridiculous, but you know, it's nothing that's really out of the realm of reality because that's the same thing what happens with the art market today. Is it a tax scheme? Probably, 
does it help people exchange value and perhaps do illicit things? Probably. And that's just about art. And NFTs are the same way because those things are scarce. And now we have a way of proving scarcity through the blockchain. And this is the part about NFTs that people miss is that it's not about the art. It's not about the artists. It's not about the auctions and it's not about money. It has very little to do with money. It has almost nothing to do with money. All that it means is that there is a way of proving that someone owns something in a digital manner. When the internet first came out, you know, there wasn't really a way to prove scarcity because everything is code. Everything is ones and zeros. You could, you could hit right click and you can save. Up until the blockchain and smart contracts really came around, there was nothing anyone could do about copying besides like lots of litigation. DRM, digital rights management, big lawsuits having to deal with Napster. People have tried to figure out ways of how to, you know, capture value that they've put out into the world. Once music and files and, you know, BitTorrent was a thing, like it was just, you know, all hands off. There's no way to know exactly where all of your content that you put out or the artwork or the music uh, is. And, you know, who do you charge money for it? Do you, there's just no way to do it. The internet kind of broke that model. You no longer needed to buy the album. You could just torrent the album or download it off of a file sharing platform like Napster. And so, you know, fast forward 20 years. Now there's the invention of the NFT, which is a digital representation of scarcity. Someone can prove that you own it. The underlying asset, however, you know, that can be copied as, you know, with anything. It's just a better record keeping system. So let's move on to some real use cases. Let's move on to some real world use cases. It can be a mechanism of funding, say a particular, and this is a ridiculous example, but I'm just going to use it to demonstrate the point. But say there's a nightclub that is trying to get some funding. They are hard on cash and they have the ability to produce wonderful shows, but they need to raise the funds to do it. How can they do that? So they want to sell an NFT that gives you VIP status. You skip the line, you get a free bottle, whatever it is, and you pay a certain amount of money for it up front. You can arrive at the club, you can show them your wallet, that wallet proves that it is yours, you own the NFT, and you and your crew can go in and have a nice time. The benefits of this is the nightclub, without much infrastructure, was able to sell a product to people in the form of passes, and they have money now to be able to keep running, produce better shows, and the persons who have purchased the passes or the NFTs are free to exchange it amongst themselves for whatever price that they deem that the nightclub you know, is worth. Um, you can structure it in such a way where it has a limited amount, maybe you can't trade it, or maybe the nightclub takes a, a fee every time that it is traded in the form of royalties. Rarible and OpenSea have an ability to do this now with artwork NFTs. Another example is it could be a pass for sports. It could be a receipt for a movie ticket. It could, it could be anything. And an interesting case in where we're seeing this now is with games. So there's some blockchain-based games and some are you know worth something and some have an actual game and others don't. But a nice little side effect of being able to attach like in-game metrics or anything to an NFT is that say you are starting a, a new game and you want to bootstrap some users. Since the NFTs are recorded on the Ethereum blockchain, which is completely public, what you what a new burgeoning game developing studio can do is, uh, well, you know, there's 10,000 bored apes 
Um, these board apes are of a certain demographic and you know their involvement in the online community is pretty high. It would be beneficial if people could see that they were going to be using our game. So what do they do is they can give some bonus, some, some sort of like in-game object that is only for those who own a board eight yacht club uh, avatar NFT. And instantly they have, you know, those 10,000 users, which are more attracted to that platform, which then bring more people that is bootstrapping the network effect. And so that's just with a game and with a nightclub or with a sports game season pass. Uh, those are some use cases of NFTs, but what really it is, and you know, moving past all of the art is an NFT is provable ownership. And that's all. It is digital provable ownership and the world can run and do whatever it sees fit to be able to make use of that. Let's talk about this paper that came out earlier this year from Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. So it's called Bitcoin Currencies and Fragility. And in this paper, and it's not very long, it's only six pages long, he tries to make the case that Bitcoin is and cryptocurrencies are worth exactly zero and have very few utility. And I'm gonna to touch on his comments and his principles here, which are highlighted and you can take a look at this as well, and I encourage everyone to, because it, there's no better piece of paper here that describes someone who's very smart, but misses the point almost entirely. So Tlaib's first comment is why BTC is worth exactly zero. Gold and other precious metals are largely maintenance-free, do not degrade over a historical horizon, and do not require maintenance to refresh their physical properties over time. Cryptocurrencies require a sustained amount of interest in them. Now let's break this down. So. He's trying to say that gold and other precious metals, you know, do, they do not degrade. They're relatively inert. And these these are true. But he's trying to say at the same time that because cryptocurrencies require a sustained amount of interest, you need nodes and miners and validators to make sure that the network stays alive. And if the network will to disappear or people decide that they unilaterally do not want to use it anymore, then the cryptocurrencies don't move. Bitcoin will not be able to transact anymore, and therefore it is worth zero. Now he's wrong in this case, because the interesting thing about blockchain and, and validation and proof of work and mining is there is a reward that's tied to it. If you are mining Bitcoin and you have 100% of the mining power of the network and you are carrying all the transactions, then you will get all of the reward. I think at this time it's somewhere around two and a half Bitcoins per block. Say, you know, someone can see that you're making two and a half Bitcoins per block and you're making this fairly often, uh, they join in too. The network has now doubled. You have half of your original. You get 1.25 Bitcoins per block. And, you know, multiply this over thousands and everyone's just getting fractions of it. Well, for some people, it's not profitable. And say electricity goes up in some areas, well, then it's no longer profitable But for some, but it might be more profitable for others in a different place if they have equipment laying around. So the interesting thing about a blockchain is that it's able to pull people in using economic incentives to get them to maintain the network. So saying that it's worth zero because it requires maintenance, I feel is a stretch. His first principle is called cumulative ruin. And he describes it as if any non-dividend yielding asset has the tiniest constant probability of hitting an absorbing barrier, essentially causing its value to become zero, then its present value must be zero. He notes that he excludes collectibles from the category, but why this is silly is what if the American empire decided to, you know, completely falter next year? It's entirely possible. Rome only lasted 2000 years. Maybe the United States only lasted a 10th of that time. 
but that doesn't stop people from using the dollar. It has nothing to do with like the probability of it like hitting a, a sort of barrier. Like everything is subjective. Value itself is subjective. I think that's silly. His second comment here is success for a digital currency. There is a mistaken conflation between success for a digital currency, which requires some stability and usability, and speculative price appreciation. Transactions in Bitcoin are considerably more expensive than wire services and other modes of transfers or ones in other cryptocurrencies. Now, he's, he's also incorrect here. You can transact, I mean, sure, it's an ATM fee. You want to send $10 to somebody in Bitcoin, it's going to cost you roughly $2.50 to send it to somebody right now. Uh, you wouldn't do that for $10. You probably wouldn't pull $10 out of an ATM and have 25% of it get taken away by an ATM fee. But what you can do, and what is uniquely capable, is say you wanted to send someone $10 billion. It's still going to cost you the same amount. And, and sure, like who really has $10 billion laying around to send somewhere? But what I'm trying to highlight is he's approaching this from the wrong way. The, and this is the thing about blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies is they don't really fit into our current understanding of economics and, and value exchange. And here he goes, and this is a perfect example, is he's saying that credit cards you can use to buy a cup of coffee instantly. But if you wanted to do it using Bitcoin, you would need to wait 10 minutes for the transaction to go through. Now, this is probably like a mismatch. You wouldn't get a cashier's check in order to buy a cup of coffee. You would use something different. But, you know, it also doesn't take 10 minutes to do. He's saying to date, 12 years into its life, in spite of all the fanfare, but with the possible exception of the price tag of Salvadorian permanent residency, three Bitcoins, there are currently no prices fixed in Bitcoin floating and fiat currencies in the economy. And this is the other part he tries to highlight with some charts in the paper that show the Bitcoin volatility. But the true thing here is that one Bitcoin is worth one Bitcoin. And looking at it in terms of a dollar is kind of missing the point. And, you know, he touches on it here is that he says it really has no uses except for now it can get you Salvador in permanent residency. And that only happened in 12 years. The Internet was invented in 1960, and it really didn't take off until like the mid to late 90s or the early 2000s. This is a really well written paper. It, the problem is that it misses the point entirely. Um, and, you know, dive a little deeper into who this gentleman is, is he used to be a hedge fund manager. He is somebody that benefits from the previous economic hegemony. He is somebody that benefits and has a stake in these technologies, you know, not taking off. Because the real secret behind what smart contracts and blockchain can do is they eliminate rent seekers. And that's kind of what the series is about, is to show how we're going to need to think about economics in a completely new way. And there's going to be a lot of old farts that just really miss the point, much like they did with the internet. Everything he says here in this paper, you can literally apply to the US dollar. The US dollar has volatility with relation to other currencies. The US dollar has a probability of reaching zero. The US dollar itself is not interest bearing. It just doesn't, you can't lay those things over each other and expect it to match up. And it's like, oh, Bitcoin is different from the dollar. Therefore, you know, Bitcoin is bad. But, you know, you have Ethereum, you have the DeFi ecosystem, you have like all of these things that can come out of technology. It's just not useful. The same criticisms we saw of the Internet earlier. And I really look forward to explaining more about how this technology can change the world. Thanks for catching this episode of the Block Pilled podcast. We have more information in our show notes, including the link to our Discord server. Now go forth and block pill the world.